Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Julia Bailey Goldstein and Scott Goldstein at uh, Loop the Loop in Underwood, Washington. It's March 30th, 2020. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Uh, first question to get us started, which apparently is going to you, Julia, is why wine? <laughs> oh, right. Um, yeah, why wine? Um, it, you know, when I was really young, like in like the first like 10 years of my life, I lived on a small family farm in Iowa. And um, I spent a lot of time outside on the farm, um, kind of in particular in this area where the swing set was, which was next to the chicken coop on one side, and then the grape arbor on the other side. And behind the grape arbor was like a row of sunflowers, and they'd get these massive heads. And it was really pretty. And then beyond, on the opposite of the grape arbor and the sunflowers was a massive garden, which fed us and sustained us for the year, that's what we lived on. And, um, you know, it was a very simple way of life, but um, really, like, I have a lot of nostalgia for it. And um, I have, like, very solid memories that are very visceral of being in that area all the time and, like, playing with the chickens as though they were our pets and, um, and you know, like, like playing on the swing set for hours and hours and getting bored with just swinging, so like spinning around the top of it like we're gymnasts and with my sisters. And, um, and But then also always like as the grapes got ripe, like testing, are they ripe, are they ready? No, they're not ready, they're too sour. <laughs> like, are they ready? Oh, they're too bitter. And then, you know, when they were ready, then like helping my grandma like harvest the grapes. And and then I, like, I know now like as an adult, my memories of it are a little bit askew. Like, were we making jam or wine? <laughs> Sure. I know grandma made wine and jam and we did both at the same time and it was all these like you know she had this massive old chinoise that was like super super old and like this big old antique wooden and um, and you know just like all the cheesecloth over the top and all the bubbly fermentation and these old pickle crocks that were just massive and like those big ceramic crocks you know and um, like with the cheesecloth over it for the fermentations and and that kind of like all these like beautiful like heady aromas and I remember thinking like that my grandmother was a genius and that this was like some kind of like beautiful like magic you know where she turned these things into deliciousness and she was like just brilliant at making like rhubarb crisp or like and and like also like we'd be like playing in them you know like in the in the orchard and like eating cherries like the same way and berries. and so like that was just like way 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 back but I think had it not been for that, like when I was in my 20s, like working in fine dining restaurants in Portland, like I, I wouldn't have had the same crazy reaction to learning about wine mm-hmm. from like restaurant managers, like a guy named Paul Markraff was a restaurant manager at this fine dining restaurant I worked at and he would give us wine lessons like every Friday. And um, you know, he was really thoughtful about it and really cared, you know, and really wanted us to learn how to talk about wine as servers, but also just fucking loved it and, and wanted to like 
like give that to us and and it was really a great experience and a lot of amazing people came out of that that time and place in the Oregon um, restaurant scene like I worked with Tyson Pierce and Marcus oh, I didn't work with Marcus then I worked with him later but he was around the corner at the Heathman at the time Goodfellow and Matt Burson from Love and Squalor and um, I'm sure I'm forgetting people, but um, but so then I started to learn about wine, working at like fine dining restaurants, just doing my job as a server, and um, I just loved it. I thought it was super exciting, and, and really the best part of the job was helping customers find the wines that would go with their meal or that they would like, and and like feeling really like satisfied and. Um, you know, happy that like this was an amazing experience for these people, and I helped them with it. And then often people would leave like this much of the wine in the bottle, and I'm gonna try it. <laughs> it was a really big deal. And so my girlfriend Melissa and I, who both work together at Oritalia, this fine dining place, she actually works for Patty Green still to this day. And later I worked for Patty Green and Melissa. I can't, she was my housemate at the time and then also a good friend. I kind of handed my job off to her and she's still there to this day. Um, anyway, um, she and I were working at this restaurant and we'd saved up all of our money for, I don't know. And, um, and we went to Europe and we traveled around for several months. And I realized when I came back, I was like 24. And I'm like, what am I gonna do with my life? Like all angsty and um, you know, confused and um, feeling a little lost, and I realized that I had spent all of my money and hard-earned servings um, tasting wine in France and Italy, and um, we went, you know, we went to Copenhagen and London too, and that was really fun. But it was really like the things that were the most exciting, right? Because that restaurant manager, Paul Markgraf, was like, um, Julia just tell them you're the assistant wine buyer. Here's my card. If they have any questions, they can ask me. And so I made all these appointments with all these <laughs> like massive French houses because we had some of those on the list. Like we, we, you know, we got like limousine service at like Jaboulet. <laughs> like, no reason whatsoever for us to have gotten that attention, but they didn't know any better, I guess. And um, it was an amazing experience. And so that, that kind of was just enough, gave me enough confidence to just reach out and, and taste with tons of amazing producers. And it was super valuable and kind of life-changing in a way. And so when I got back, I was like, what am I gonna do with my life? And I realized that I'd spent all my money on wine and um, also like going to art museums. And so I enrolled in the community college art program and then our art history program. And then I also started at, with A in the yellow pages in the phone book because we still had this back then. And I made it as far as Argyle and I got a job at Argyle. And that was, um, I don't know what year that was to be honest, 99 maybe? I think 99. Um, and I worked there for a while, um, but I wanted to, I really, really, really wanted to be in the cellar. I wanted to make wine. And I was like, no kidding, like told girls just distract the boys in the cellar. Um, you should work in the tasting room. And I think that, um, I won't name people, but the powers that be then there were like very generous to keep promoting me and promoting me through the tasting room, but definitely not. I mean, I would volunteer like after work every day in the cellar or in the weekends in the cellar, but I wasn't really given a chance. So I didn't, I got promoted all the way to tasting room manager at a point. And the second I got there, I quit because I was like, I hate this. Cause you know, the more you get promoted, the less you're actually doing anything that has to do with wine and you're just sitting in front of a computer. And, um, 
And so even though that was an amazing job for me at the time, I left and luckily, like almost immediately, my friend Kate, who owns Oregon Wines on Broadway, told me that Patty was looking for someone and I should talk to Patty. And so I reached out to Patty and I was really fortunate to get a position with Patty and Jim um, at Patricia Green Cellars, which they just opened then. And, um, and they needed someone to just kind of help with everything and anything, um, but definitely a lot with sales and in the Portland market, not because they weren't selling their wine, but because they were selling it all to the East Coast and they really wanted to still be present. But when you're the first employee um, in a small business like this, like the, like the third week I think I was there, they called me up and they were both out of town on sales visits and they were like, we totally forgot, we have a 20 case drop to Liner Nelson on Friday, it's not, it doesn't have capsules on it. <laughs> or, or it wasn't labeled, actually, at this point, I can't remember which it was. And, but they were like, this is where the hidden key is for the seller. This is, I've never done any of this before. Like, I've never put a capsule on a bottle. I've never put a, I, I can't remember. They were corked, for sure. They were shiners. I think I had to do capsules and labels, actually. And they, like, told me where to find the pieces of equipment and talked me through it on the phone. Oh and, I, and I got it all done, and I, like, loaded up the car. The, the hardest part was actually finding the spare key. I could not find the spare key. It wasn't actually where they thought it was. But um, one of their amazing vineyard helpers, like, um, employees helped me find, helped me get in. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's what it was like working with um, Patty and Jim back then. Um, everybody, it was just so small. Everything was um, needed to be done urgently, and, and we can appreciate what, that's that. That's kind of what we're experiencing right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah we've, got, we've got a young woman in the vineyard, and she's our third person this year, and she's kind of helping with everything. Yeah. Our third person? Yes. One, two, three. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, we don't have three people. I wish we had three people. That'd be amazing. Including, including <laughs> us, <I mean. laughs> Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and then from there, I, I honestly got a little restless working with just one wine, like one winery. And I decided to study for my sommelier certification and got a job, um, which was pretty awesome at the time, um, as a wine buyer and restaurant manager with Pascal Sauton, who was, uh, an, well, he still is, I'm sure, an amazing French chef, but he doesn't live in Oregon anymore. He's back in France. Um, so it was called Craft, and I managed that restaurant and helped open it and create it with them, um, Pascal and Julie at the time, his wife at the time. And, um, and then from there, I, I also kind of got restless and felt like, you've got to do more in this world, like be more, like just selling wine, you know, it's a luxury item perhaps to some extent, although maybe also a necessity, it just kind of depends on which mood I'm in at the time when I think about it. Um, and so I, I went back to university to get a degree in international relations and, um, and also my mom had cancer at the time, so I also went back to help her. So it was kind of twofold, but, um, she recovered and I ended up traveling to um, work with women in business in Palestine and also in Israel. And, um, but the women in business part was in Palestine, but then the work that I did while I was in the West Bank um, in Ramallah um, and then also a little bit in Jerusalem incorporated, a lot of it was funded by USAID or CETA or um, European commissions depending on the project. And, Almost always there were Palestinians and Israelis working together as part of the projects. And my three month there turned into, what was supposed to be three months there, turned into almost five years. 
and um, it was another life. I had a whole other life there. <laughs> and in that life there, um, I um, was married to someone else. I know. <laughs> and, um, I <laughs> you're right, I know, it seems surreal. <laughs> and, um, and we opened a restaurant together that was really focused on the slow food movement and concept and bringing slow foods of that era, era like area, and like of the Levant, basically, Palestine, Israel, Syria. Um, historic foods that were made in a historic way, like to life, and, and a lot of these foods um, were only made by, they were dying in society because um, people start shopping and buying Twix or, or like uh, Cheerios or what have you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like those are there too. <laughs> um, and so you kind of like lose some of the historic foods. And so that was a concept that we were working on and, and, and um, actively working on. And so we were also um, ferment, uh, uh, we were distilling um, arak in the restaurant. We were in a Christian village, so alcohol was fine. Um, but uh, there were no laws about alcohol either. And so we were distilling arak on Monday nights, and people could come and put their glass under the still, and we would turn it on, and they could have their arak straight out of the still. And of course, we were very careful to remove the heads and the tails and all that. But it was really cool. And so I, we made a friend with a man who was a Christian Palestinian who was starting his own winery there. And um, since I had worked in wineries, he and I were chatting a ton and kind of like sharing information. And um, at one point, because I'd been working with him so much, he dropped off two tons, no kidding, two tons of fruit at the restaurant door and said, you need to make wine. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did, but I did it like in a kiddie pool. And I went to the, the souk, like the market, and I bought all these like olive oil containers and I like, I basically like I destemmed everything completely by hand into the kiddie pool and then I did like pijage and then basically I like did equal parts of the and, and it was just like kind of crazy and then like for a press I of course I didn't have a press so like um, a friend of mine and I would like each take either side of a sheet and put it like and fill it, it and then twist it and twist it and twist it until we got all the juice out um, and that was kind of crazy and not planned right so the funny thing is, it was so much fun, and it, it really was not something, I was at the time, I'm like, what the, f I've got so much to do, I don't have time for this, like, but it was, it was amazing, I mean, I was like doing it at like five in the morning before I had to start making bread, and, um, and it was like, it was so like therapeutic, and, and, and it also like really connected me and brought me back to like the time that I had working with Patty and Jim, and, uh, and like just working in the industry and um, and the connection and the connectivity of feeling like you're part of something, it just like it just like when you hear something or taste something from your past, it kind of like really like brought that in me and it also made me realize how lonely I was and how hard it was living places where you didn't speak the language necessarily um, very well <laughs> and um, and it wasn't your your um... anyway so. Uh, one thing led to another, and within a year, I decided that I wanted to come back. And I came back. I have an old friend who I actually worked with at this restaurant that I was mentioning earlier, um, who makes uh, Matt Person, who makes Love and Squalor. And I did harvest with him. He just moved to Metello. Our micros good now. It's called Goodfellow Family mm -hmm. Cellars, but at the time it was Metello, and um, was going to do his first vintage there. It wasn't his first vintage, but his first vintage after leaving Brooks. And, um, and I 
agreed to basically help him and trade for room and board and um, decided to like just come back and, and, and see what it was like and I felt very much like it was for me and so I decided to stay and in 2012 I was looking at, I was working with Matt and also a little bit with Marcus at the time again and I was thinking about going to, I was actually in the process of applying to UC Davis and um, and it was Marcus who said, uh, no one, <laughs> maybe I should ask Marcus if I can say this. <laughs> I should have said somebody said <laughs> um, that nobody that I would want to work for would hire me if I went to UC Davis. I, I'm sure that's not true. But, um, but at the time, I, he, but his point was like, also you're too old, like I was 35 at the time. He's like, if you want to make wine, just make wine. You're going to fuck it up and you're going to learn how to fix it. And that's um, and 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 that'll be your tuition, right? Because you're going to lose money in the process. And so that's what I did. I, like the very next day, John Groshaw was making wine there at the time, and he was telling Matt and I about this amazing vineyard in the Yamhill Carlton that had like vines that were planted in the 70s, Pomard, self-rooted, um, and it was uh, 2012. So in spite of the fact that it was a super marginal site, which is why the guy was, partly why the guy was having so much trouble with it. Um, it was uh, beautiful, just gorgeous that year, and it was dirt cheap. And so um, kind of worked it out so that I, we got that. And I continued basically for the next, like until 2015 to do harvest for Matt, basically for free and trade for letting me make wine there and helping me out with some of the costs of buying fruit and, um, and just getting going, and, and initially I made wine under his license. And um, that was how I started, and so in 2012 I started with about 150 cases, and then the next year I was closer to 300, and then kind of grows and grows from there. And in 2017, um, Scott and I had been together for a couple years, and we had gone on a trip to, I guess it was in 18 that we went, but Scott started to help me in 2017. Mm -hmm. And then, so, like what did you do? So. Before, before you started to help me. Oh, oh. <laughs> before the meeting, what, what, tell us about your life before that. Right, so we met, what, in the end of 2015 or something like that? So I wasn't in the picture for all, 14. Of, for all of, oh yeah, 14. <laughs> <laughs> for all of this so far. Um, and I did not come from the wine world at all. I knew, I, I liked wine, but I knew very little about wine. Um, and I didn't know anything about Oregon wine because I had went to UC Davis but I did not study wine. <laughs> and my mom at the time was encouraging me to enter the wine program, but I, at the time, I had no love of wine. And um, yeah, I, I studied biology and then animal physiology, because it's a vet, vet animal school. And I became a physical therapist, and that was kind of my, that, my, sole, my sole focus of life, my professional life, and it was a big part of my life. Was, trying to become a good physical therapist. And, um, and wine only entered the picture when it was time to really confusedly try to order something that would go with my food. <laughs> and I'm uh, surprised that on our first date, we talked about wine a little bit, and I'm really surprised that Julie went on a second date with me. She really cared about wine, and I said all the wrong things. No. <laughs> Other than the fact that I like wine. <laughs> there you go. That might have been good enough to start. Um, so why wine for me? Um, I think first and foremost, I fell in love with the winemaker. Um, but uh, I think gradually over the last seven years or so, um, it's become a part of who I am as well. 
and um, it's been a it's been a rapid it's been a rapid um, growth and lots of learning for me. I oftentimes like drinking through a through a fire hose is a pretty good analogy. Um, um, but uh, and I have a lot more to learn. But um, I, I've come, yeah, I've come to love it. Um, you know, it, on, there's several different levels. Like professionally, I had been working as a physical therapist for 20 years, and although I loved it, it was I'd been doing it for about 20 years, and um, it was taking a lot of energy and time, and it was starting to really drain me, even though I still enjoyed some aspects of it. Um, and so starting to help Julia in 2017, and then even more in 2018, um, it was a little bit of a fresh of breath air. You know, my life had been very, I went to the same place every day, because uh, I worked in one place for 10 years, and I was doing physical therapy, and I'd be doing my documentation, and I'd try to stay fit and work out, and I'd come home and have a delicious dinner with Julia and yeah, stuff. Um, but when I started helping out, all of a sudden my life became much more diverse. And that's a big part of winemaking and owning a vineyard is you're always doing something different. Um, and that variety added a lot of energy and interest and fascination and, and again, lots of learning. <laughs> um, um, but it was, very, it was very appealing kind of after, after kind of becoming a little bit stagnant in my previous life. Um, and, um, and then not only that, like, you know, the, the beauty of the vineyards and starting to learn about it, growing and ag agriculture and, and different ways of doing that and, and kind of learning a little bit more about that. And I, I had been kind of a, a tree hugger environmentalist for an, a number of years. And, uh, so some of those aspects of learning about how some vineyards are taken care of really kind of resonated with me. Um, and so there was the kind of the aesthetic and, and romantic view of, of the vineyard and, and growing grapes and turning that into, into something else that's really special. And, um, and then wine in and of itself, I think, has been fascinating to, to learn winemaking from kind of a little bit of an outsider's perspective. Um, and then it's, I was kind of entertained for the, and I still am for the first several years, but like, when are we actually winemaking? Like, <laughs> okay, we've got the grapes, now they're in the press. Is it wine? No, it's not wine. Okay, they're in the fermenter. They're starting to ferment. Is it, from, is it wine now? Not quite. <laughs> when we're moving wine from, you know, like, fermenter to tank. Is it wine now? Like, well, you always no, say, not, not you quite. have to remind yourself you're making wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we clean and we move wine a lot. And it's like, <laughs> you got to remember, we're making wine. <laughs> Even though you're just cleaning up something, you're making wine. Um, but in the end, you are in this very kind of long process, like part, of, part of something that's kind of special and that can in, then end up being very unique to place where it's grown, um, to be shared with family and friends and have a special experience that is even amplified when, sh when drank with food and how it pairs with food. 
and it can bring people together in a way that's very unique and special. Yeah. Um, so that's another reason why wine. <laughs> I'm curious from your perspective, Scott, it's interesting you mentioned you kind of fell in love with a winemaker and then had to kind of do the rest after that. What is it like, what was it like for you to kind of um, come into someone else's passion, to have, a, have someone who's so passionate about their work and has been doing it for so long, good question. to kind of come into it when you did and, and sort of learn how to fit in, how it fits into your life? Yeah, how was that for me? Um, <clears throat> I was, excuse me, sorry, I'm scratching the microphone. Bad, <laughs> bad move. Um, yeah, I think it, it's a, I think that's a con there's there's many things going on there. It's a little bit of a complex uh, question and answer because um, uh, you know on one hand I was coming from a place where I had been doing something and working hard at becoming trying to become good at something for a long time, and when I would go to work, even though there were there were stresses and challenges. I felt fairly confident in my ability, in my abilities as a physical therapist to help my patient. Uh, I was educated, I was certified in multiple things, and, and so I, I had a confidence when I went to work and when I stepped in front, you know, like when I met a patient and we started talking about their problem. Um, and when I started helping Julia, like, I didn't know how to do anything. Uh, you know, I couldn't put a clamp on. I, could, I, just, you know, I, I knew nothing. Like, how much of this stuff do I use? You know, like, and and so, uh, and so, it was a blend of gratification from learning how to do something, or maybe doing something on my own for the first time, which was was kind of a new experience again because my learning curve was so steep. Mm -hmm. um, so, learning how to do new things was great, but at the same time, I, I felt. You know, we worked in collective spaces like the Southeast Wine Collective, and you know there was there was always a time constraint because you you're almost like you had you've got the winery for these you know this chunk of time and and you've got to go 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 and so there was there was limited time for me to like stop and learn and ask questions and and take my time with something which is kind of how my brain works a little bit is to really be um, kind of, contemplative or con you know, contemplate about it, you know? Like, let me think about that for a while. Can't do that, keep going. <laughs> We're gonna be here all night if you just sit there and think about it. <laughs> um, so it was a blend of like gratification and learning, but also frustration of not being confident in, in what I was doing. But I'm, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Right? Yeah, you're kicking ass. <laughs> um, and I think her enthusiasm is infectious. Uh, and so I think that, that helped um, me to kind of fall in love with it and be intrigued and fascinated by winemaking. And uh, we've shared some really amazing experiences, whether it's traveling around or at our own dining room table mm -hmm. um, with food and wine and with friends. So. So you've taken us up to about the time when you met now, and, 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 <laughs> and Scott becomes part of the, so the process is that now you're here. So there's a lot of steps along the way. So you've been kind of working with Matt, uh, you've been you've just kind of start slowly growing this project. At, at the time for you, what were you foreseeing long-term? What was your plan or, or, or hope for what was going to happen next? I think my approach to everything in life has always been a little bit more organic than that. Like, I'm, I'm not one to do a five-year plan at all. It's really just like, let's just see what happens. You know, we'll just, I mean, I knew I liked making wine almost like it wasn't even a, uh, 
an option or a choice, you know? That's just what I did. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, yeah. Um, I won't go into that. Um, like, it, like, making things is a very special thing. Whether you're, I, I've also worked with ceramics and like um, building, like hand building, um, pottery, and had some exhibitions. And, and that was maybe a direction I could have gone in. Um, I had an exhibition in Portland, like the minute I came back to Portland, it seemed. And, and that was a big deal. I made a bunch of artwork for it, and it went really well. And, and I could have continued with that, but once I started making wine, I and had to get another job to pay the bills. And like, there just wasn't really time. And, and anyway, my creative energy was going into a place. And so, um, but I can say that when I started to make wine, um, I realized very quickly, like 200 cases sounded like so much wine. Like, what am I gonna do with it once I make it? And, and so I realized very quickly I needed to learn how to sell it. And so, um, you know, I had worked selling wine as a wine buyer um, after I got my sommelier certification. Like that was something that I did, but I had never been in a position to sell it to wine buyers, mm -hmm. and so that was scary to me. <laughs> it's like terrifying. Um, so I ended up immediately getting a job with a wine distribution company, and that was a big part of my trajectory, I suppose, um, because I, I worked for a company that sold wines. Um, from bone imports, and, and there's just a tremendous amount of special wines in that portfolio. And I, I, got, I was very fortunate to be able to work with them year in and year out for something like six years. Um, and, and most of the producers in that portfolio um, use wild yeast. They are either organic or biodynamic. And, um, and really, a lot of them have inherited sites and they've cared for for a long time. A lot of them have taken sites that have been in the family that were just being sold off in bulk and they turned it into something really magical. But um, I feel like I learned day in and day out just doing my job, which was researching the wines that I was selling for these amazing winemakers, you know, um, what they did, how they did it, how they changed what they did year in, year out, and um, also sometimes with great fortune visiting them and learning about it firsthand. And Scott was very, very generous that he was very happy to go like on our like kind of honeymoon, <laughs> which we took before we got married. We did a little work trip. Um, <laughs> We went to the Loire and tasted with some amazing producers. Yeah, and really one day, cool like the day we went to see Francois Chivain, I'm sure you regret this maybe now, but I don't know. You were like, I'm done. I'm going for a bike ride. <laughs> so I I'm went and met with Francois. It was, early. it was early in the morning. So I'm like, I'm going to sleep in and then I'm going to go for a bike ride in the sunshine <laughs> in France. It's going to be great. And then she, you know, later we got home and we were drinking wine and you know, she's like, you know, you could have met Francois Chaudet. And I'm like, oh man, that might have been a mistake. <laughs> so I think I did that, enjoy my bike right Yeah, ultimately, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was really important. I was a time, cyclist, actually. so you know, going for a bike ride in France was, you know, it was important. Essential, even. Yeah. yeah. But I think that was, um, I, I learned as much. As funny as it sounds, and I feel like maybe people would roll their eyes at it, but I definitely feel that for me, I learned as much about making wine from that job as anything I learned working with anyone in the Willamette Valley um, directly in the cellars because it was just a constant every day part of my life was researching how are they doing this and why is it tasting like this and tasting the wine all the time and how is it changing in the bottle and tasting a diverse 
amount of wines. And then in the job, we would taste blind every Monday, and we would taste through like every very specific region in Burgundy this month, or or over that would take more than a month. But you know, like or you know, and then later we went to the Rhone, and 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 just constantly tasting and learning, learning, learning. How are other people doing it? I feel like that got me a little bit out of what was maybe more of a narrow perspective that I had been in before of how do you make wine in Oregon? Like Burgundy. <laughs> yeah, and so then it, it was just excitement. Um, how, do you, how do we do what we've been doing and make the, because you know like the best wines are just like vibrating with energy. They're just alive. And, and how do you get there? Like what do, what do we, like? Is it the vineyards? Is it the what we're doing in the cellar? I mean, of course, it's all of that, and and that was it's just a, always it's a constant excitement and drive, and then it's also like an excitement and drive when you're tasting your wine over the years in in bottle after it's been in barrel for a couple of years and, and aging and and learning. It's just constantly exciting to learn how everything's changing and growing and developing and expanding. At the time you mentioned all the education you were getting on the job and all the different things you were tasting and, and, and experimenting with, uh, just as a, as, a, as a consumer of that or as a, as a part of your job, huh? what were you? What kind of decisions were you making, and what kind of realizations were you having about what you could do in your project, what you wanted to yeah. do, what what kind of style you were looking for, or, or kind of farming type you were looking sure. for? What were the realizations as you were kind of putting them into your own project? That the wine is—it's just like such a truism. It's completely made in the vineyard. The only job of the winemaker is not to fuck it up once it gets into the cellar. Follow it, guide it, listen to it. It, it, it will tell you, like, do I need to be, do I need a little batonage because I'm getting stinky and reductive, but maybe I don't need to be racked, maybe just a little tiny bit. You know, just like very gently, cautiously even follow it and help it along. But it's almost like, following a toddler who's trying to learn to walk, and you don't want to pick them up and walk them. <laughs> you just kind of make sure they don't hit their head on something <laughs> as they're going. Yeah, um, I think that's it. And, and that's like the most exciting thing about having our own vineyard now, um, that we can actually do that. And we're just really mm -hmm. beginning to experience it. And it's thrilling. Like it's, Scary and exciting, and yeah. So before that, before your vineyard, which we'll get to in a minute here, what were you looking for in vineyard sites as you were sourcing for your own for your own fruit for fruit for your own wine? Sure. Well, initially, I think I was looking for um, old vines mm -hmm. and our older, mature vines, um, twenty years or more, ideally. And um, I think I've always had a love for Pomard and Badensville and um, first and foremost those two I suppose but then um, I'm interested in the Cory clone but I haven't had the opportunity to work with it or have worked with anyone who worked with it as far as I know mm -hmm. of course it could have, could have been Pomard or what we thought was Pomard um, right in <laughs> um, Riesland too right? oh yeah, yeah. absolutely <clears throat> absolutely when did, you, when did you first start working with the Sunnyside Vineyard 2012. Yeah. No, 2013. No, 12. 2012. Yeah. 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 Um, 
Yeah, Riesling that for been, sure. That had been there for a while, right? Yeah, it was, it was fine. Planted in like '71. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so that was initially the most important thing at the time for me, thinking that the mature vines were something special to be appreciated and sought after. I still think so, definitely. Um, over time, I've really, I've seen how younger vines can still have this energy, this I don't know how else to put it, but like when you're having like the, the wine, especially with the right food, there's like a vibration almost. Like it's just exciting. Mm -hmm. and, and I've seen that you can get that out of younger vines and it's maybe more about how it's farmed and maybe it's more about the soil or, or just that really special place in the world where it comes from. Um, and so I think over time I've become, and, and I think you and I both together have become more and more convinced that it's about the soil, the farming, um, and what's going on in the vineyard, because maybe you can't say that that's always true of old vines, if they're farmed commercially, um, for example, um, or maybe just without as much attention. Um, mm -hmm. But I think vines that are farmed with a lot of attention and care and, um, they, they can, I think it shows. Intending yeah. to a sustainability yeah. like bent or process. Yeah, I'm hesitant to say anything that might make someone feel like I'm dissing what they do because I have a lot of respect for what everyone's doing and I don't necessarily know if what we're doing is right, but this is the path we've chosen and it's yeah. my gut that this is the right path. And so we do farm, uh, Scott's primarily a viticulturalist in the the little project we have going on here. <laughs> we, and then I'm, of course, like make the wine, but we both do everything together basically because yeah. um, so we, we're tiny. We, we've both <laughs> taken, I've taken one or two viticulture classes and Julia's taken a few more and yeah. she's been doing this a little bit longer than I have. But um, I'm out there on the tractor and figure out how, how to work a sprayer and <laughs> uh, working with the chemicals and researching all the, uh, the chemicals, which are what cinnamon oil and I mean, we don't really use like we don't use harsh like, we, don't, we so, don't use any so synthetics. We're, so we're farming. So yeah, now we have this vineyard and, and we decided kind of just to take a step back from what I was just saying. So we have this this vineyard and um, it uh, it was a little bit sick when we bought it. It had been for sale for four years, so I think human nature. They probably thought it was going to sell a little faster than that, and they probably like moved on a little bit. Um, the previous owners they did a great job of putting it in and taking care of it for a long time. Um, thank you, our neighbors. Um, but it was a little sick with, with various things. Uh, Almost anything you could yeah, look for. Pretty we much, found. Pretty if much you everything. looked for it, we'd find it. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it was produced, that first year we had it, it produced very little, um, like a tiny acre. Maybe a little less. Yeah. Excuse me again. Um, and so we, uh, so we, you know, at the outset, just uh, from our life's experience, we wanted to farm it organically. And, um, and, uh, through, through a dear friend, we were introduced to an amazing person named Mimi Castile. And uh, she actually did a little consulting for us. Um, and um, she was very cautious and very gentle with her advice. She definitely did not give us a prescription of what to do. Um, nope. But just kind of like got us 
maybe maybe not even pointed in the right direction because she was so so um, yeah I don't know what to say like gentle with her advice um, but but we were very impressed with her and she's a wonderful person and so we we found that she had been interviewed a lot so we started listening to her <laughs> during interviews and uh, we we I think we had heard this before but we if I may I think Mimi knew how little money we had and how much it takes to farm the way that you have to tr like to transition the vineyard <laughs> and um, and that's a hardship and uh, and I think she didn't want to make us feel like we automatically had to do something so there was a lot of mm. suggestions without um, with while saying but it's totally fine to do it any way you like <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Um, right. without, without making us feel as though we had to. Um, but we, I think Scott and I both were like on board 100% and wanted to, to learn more. And so she, mm -hmm. she kind of did put us down the right path, but yeah. we had to, she kind of put us in a position where she wasn't going to, she wasn't going to do it for us. We had to learn by ourselves. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So in this case, you were, you were the toddler being taught how to Yeah, yes, totally. That exactly. was yeah. exactly right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you just kept us from falling over and hitting our heads yeah. too hard. So we, <laughs> so we, got, we got pointed down the path of regenerative agriculture. Um, she uh, certainly practices that and uh, had taken over her family vineyard. And, um, mm -hmm. Bethel Heights. Bethel Heights vineyard, yeah, which, which had, had some problems in it. And um, so we had our vineyard with our problems, and so we, we started walking down that path of regenerative agriculture, and, and we're still learning, and we're both taking a soil science class and realizing how important, how important and integral that is for the vines. Um, but our vineyard is, is doing better, and it produced a lot more last year, and still has a little ways to go, but yeah. we're feeling good about how we're taking care of it, and at least the initial signs are that we're, we're doing okay. Yeah. So really putting all of our emphasis on bringing back that universe of microbes and fungi, yeah. <clears throat> beneficial bacteria and, and the right balance of fungi to bacteria like under our feet so that the vines can send out their exudates and there will be a partner there for them with the fungi that's connected to the roots to say, yes, I can bring in those micronutrients for you when you need them. So we don't have to continue to spray for them, right? Yeah. And then having yeah. like a, a green compost that lives perennially in the vineyard. And it's been a challenge for us just to get that down. Like that was something that we thought we'd, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> the first, first time we met, okay, she said to, yeah. <laughs> It's like three, this is a third time you seated, right? Yeah. <laughs> third, maybe, yeah, third. third. We've had the, the land for two years almost, and yeah, it just, it last spring. Two, two and a half years. We yeah. had a crazy yeah. drought. We seeded in the first part of um, March, the first, I think, the 10th of March, I think we seeded. And, um, and it didn't have rain for months, no rain months after that. Until yeah. June. So and we then, were like, we, were, we thought we And then we there was were, the heat dome right we after were, it rained. We thought we were safe from the frost. Because we did, couldn't yeah. see right before right, know, it was right. cold, and then all of a sudden it went from cold to no water. Um, so a little climate change. Yeah. And, uh, so that was, you know, we spent money on seeds and all the time and effort, and then we got very little growth from it. Well, because um, we had seeded the previous autumn, but the frost killed it. <laughs> so we were a little bit conservative about the frost. Right, and, we were worried about the frost. And then the rain didn't come, and so this 
last, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so hopefully this time, fingers crossed, come visit us seems, in two months. seems to be better, yeah. We'll have wildflowers and peas and daikon radishes for helping bio, with compaction. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Mother Nature is, uh, she's got her own idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to come back to the kind of the, the transition into this property, but I want to back up for a second first. Uh, you mentioned working in the Southeast Wine Collective. So how, how did that come about? And what, what point in the kind of the growth stage was that? Right. And tell me about the experience of making wine. You mentioned kind of the like, the hectic, the hectic nature of making wine in a collective space like that. Tell me about your experiences there as, as you were growing the brand. Um, well, I guess this was, I, I went to the Southeast Wine Collective and, well, actually, I had, for a hot second, decided maybe I wouldn't make wine. <laughs> um, this is a hot second. Um, I just, the commute, I had a full-time day job. It was going really well. I liked it. Um, driving out to McMinnville, I mean, I had done it for so long. I did it with Argyle. I did it with Patty. I'd, and then I was doing it for five years, working with Matt and um, over harvests and helping Marcus from time to time. Um, and uh, I just, I think for a, a hot second, I thought, you know, it's just too much. And so I wasn't going to make wine. And then I just, I guess apparently I didn't really dig into that because I was apparently looking on wine business to see what grapes were for sale. I remember this. <laughs> we were at the beach. Um, harvest had already started in 2016 and the Four Winds Vineyard was posted in wine business having some fruit for sale. And I just saw that and I was like, oh, because I made wine from Four Winds. I mean, I didn't make it. Patty made wine from Four Winds, but I sold it. And I actually got to help make it like um, when I would go out and help with harvest. And it was something that I felt connected to and it was connected to my past. And I was super excited, like, oh my gosh, if, we can, if I can work with this, like, okay. And so I called Tom at the Southeast Wine Collective. Um, I lived at the time, like, a, not far, like less than a mile away. I'm like, I can do it if we can do it in town. Like, if I can, at the time it was me, I guess. So if I can do it in town, I can make this work. And just no more commuting. And um, yeah, and he's like, well, I don't have room for you to make Riesling and the Pinot, but I can do, you know, like it was gonna be like three tons of Pinot. Um, not very much. And that was really like, I think that first year of not being with Marcus and Matt and part of what they were doing and just being completely on my own was what really kind of, no going back. It, it was great. It was um, really fun that year to be at the collective. There were some really um, good winemakers there and um, it was really fun to like bounce ideas off each other. There's a lot of young, like youthful energy, I guess. Yeah, young exactly, but <laughs> um, you know, it was like a place where a lot of people were trying to grow something, and that's got a lot of energy behind it. And um, yeah, and the wines, the wine was easy that 2012, like super easy. So it, the wine was delicious the whole time; like it never tasted funny. <laughs> it's not always true wine, wine with wine. Is easy. <laughs> yeah. It gave me a lot of positive feedback, I guess, and mm -hmm. so. Um, yeah, like right away the next year, I was looking for a place that was cheaper in town and found a, a, 
a guy who was selling macro bins that had a spot that was bonded, and so I made some wine at his place and some wine at the collective, and grew quite a bit. I think it was close to like 1,800 cases already that next year, and um, that was in 17, and then in 18, we were around close to 2,000 again, and, um, and that was in 18, Scott decided after 10 years as a physical therapist at the, yeah, the same clinic to, yeah, at the same clinic, 20 years probably at that <clears> point, <throat> as a PT, that you decided to take a little sabbatical, and, and you were going to take a couple months off, and we went to Europe, for, we went to Italy for a month with his family, his mom had turned 70 and had a lifelong dream of staying in a chateau in Italy, so... We were like, sure, mom, we'll go. <laughs> that was, but we tasted a lot of wine, and um, and once you took that time off, um, you took two months off, and you decided to find a new job. I was like, well, as long as you're taking time off, why don't you help me with harvest? <laughs> and that I was. I had a great, I had a great two weeks where I yeah. mountain biked like every other day, and I slept <laughs> in, and I did some yoga, and just and that like, was that. chilled out, and then I started. Maybe in another 15 years you can do that again. Have you considered a harvest? And never, never looked back. Yeah. So I guess I feel like we're taking this long story. So long story short, um, we like just we had grown a lot. It was hard to fit into the collective. So in 18 we made our whites at day day camp at day wines. Um, thank you, Sam. And then we made our reds at the collective, and then it was just like we just clearly were like getting too big for these places that we were at, and um, it was great in a lot of ways to like ask. I love asking questions to winemakers. Um, I don't necessarily always agree with what people say or want to like, you know. But it's good to know like why, like what, like what are your thoughts, and and why why do you make the decisions you make, and and it was a place where I could ask lots of different people all the time and yeah. um, and learn like so when they do this because of that then this is what happens and, and I don't have to maybe go down the path because I can watch them the whole way you know it was a really amazing opportunity and um, and there were some great people there like Chris Luberstedt in particular like really helped me not fuck things up like whenever I was freaking out like especially with whites he's an he's a fantastic winemaker but he's a phenomenal white winemaker um, it was really a, an, like a generous thing to be able to to have him be so kind, and 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 that's the other thing. The industry is like full of people who are so kind and helpful, and um, yeah. And so basically, we hit a point where um, I was losing contracts to like vineyards that were selling, or just had really good offers from people with a lot more money, um, mm -hmm. and it happened again and again. And there was this like. Also, background getting, buzz that too big for the yeah. spaces. And well, basically, Scott's <laughs> brother-in-law um, one day said, "If you want any help ever, like let me know because like I'd love to." He loved. I, he's like, "You make great wine. I'd love to help you." And I was like, "I'm good. I, I, like I'm, no, I'm very proudful. Like I've done this by myself, starting with nothing, and um, and I, I'm doing a good job." And I felt like I was, but then Scott, I mentioned, it, didn't even mention it to you oh, right away. I mentioned said, it. He like, must have said that three or four okay. times, and, and every time we were like, "No, nah, we're good. You know, we've got. We just went and bought like eight kegs. We're good." <laughs> <laughs> We just bought a fermenter. We're yeah. doing great. <laughs> um, but then you were like. But then at, at some point we were like, you know, when you 
said, if we need any help, what do you, what do you mean by that? Because Scott know? was like, you need a vineyard. <laughs> like one day he's at like, some point, I'm like, yeah, be nice. Yeah, you need your own vineyards. So we don't have to deal with losing contracts at the last second or not having enough fruit or not having control over you know, certain things. Um, or suddenly the prices go way up and you're like, that doesn't seem, yeah. Something. So Scott's dad lives in White Salmon. His dad bought a little ca- built a cabin um, in Trout Lake when he was a little boy, and then his sister was living in Hood River. Had lived there for like forty years, and we spent a lot of time out in the gorge. And every time we're out here, I'm looking around, like, why aren't there vineyards there? Why aren't there vineyards there? And there are vineyards there. What it is like, you know? And um, and it's just it's a really special place. And so between and it, it was like Bill helped us which was super helpful, we're paying him back, but he kind of basically helped us kind of do the transition to like paying the mortgage on this property while still paying at the collective. Um, that's his brother-in-law, mine too. Um, but it was more the fact that he got us thinking bigger, you know, and so we started to do our own mm-hmm. business plans and, or like, you know, we started to do our business plans and saw like, wow, maybe we could actually make this work, which was crazy scary and so we started coming out here looking at property and I was I was personally thinking like we'd buy some fallen down barn with a farmhouse and fix it up and make wine in the barn and um, and then sell it there but in the because of regulations you have to have 15 contiguous acres to have a tasting room on the property so then it was like looking at little tiny little like pocket tasting room shops in the Hood River area thinking we'd still buy the farmhouse with the fallen on barn that we'd put back together and make wine out of. And, and Scott was, and we, but the first property we saw was the one we're on. And we, every time we came out to the gorge, we would, almost every time we'd come up here and it's still for sale and we'd just stand here and we'd look and we'd dream and we'd be like, we could never afford it. There was just a field here. Uh, we were actually like, oh, we better not walk up there. Somebody's property. We don't want to get, sh- <laughs> we don't want to get shot or, you know, have somebody come out and yell at us. So we'd just hang out on the road and we had a dog named Romeo and we'd throw yeah. the stick for him. Yeah. And we'd look at the mountain and look, you know, we just, we just fell in love loved with it. it. We just thought yeah. it was, we just thought it was great. And, uh. And, uh, yeah, and at some point we're like, well, let's... Like two let's, years later. <laughs> two years later. It's like, still well, for let's, sale. Let's, let's just hypothetically, like, make a, make a plan for buying that, buying that and maybe not getting it for the asking price, getting it for this price, and what we can afford, and how much do we have to sell, and stuff. And, so here we are. And somehow we did work, and it was really hard, and there was one point where I think we were both crying, and we were like, we were giving up. We had made the business plan, but we forgot to include a tractor. And then we saw a tractor cost $50,000, and I was like, that's it. We are out. We cannot do this. And, yeah. and I called my dad, and he was like... And you told him, we're not going to do it. He's like, nope. Nope, you guys have got to keep going. You've got to reach, you've got a dream. You've got to reach, reach for your for dr- reach for your dreams. You've got to keep going. So Because he, he's like, we won't let you become homeless. Right. Like, you've and got was, family. You can, like, like, what's the worst that can happen? You're going to fail, and maybe you just sell the property, and you'd probably get you know, most of your money back. And so he's like, no big deal. You know, you're not going to be homeless. You're not going to starve. We were freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> but we so, went ahead. So we were like... All right. So we actually we uh, made us somehow, cry. Somehow, somehow we ended up with this 
but we think is a beautiful place. And, and then we moved we here, and then 2020 fortunate. happened, and every single wine we no, made yeah. was affected with smoke, and our own vineyard was the worst of it. So the first year of farming our own vineyard, we did the vast majority of it by ourselves, every day out there, and we were so slow. We were like, hey, honey, should I pull this leaf? Or that leaf, come over here, what do you think? Because Mimi said, but then Brian, because in the classes we took at Chemeketa, uh, like, oh, we, we, were, we were surgical about every single step we did. Um, we learned a lot. We were very, very, very slow. Um, and then, like, that, all that love that we put into it that year, like, the wildfires, like, when the wildfires first came, I remember, like, I put on a ventilator and I was just standing out here in the middle of the vineyard as though I was gonna like protect my babies or something, but there's just nothing you can do. You're just standing there like an idiot in the smoke, <laughs> like go home. <laughs> it was pretty brutal. Um, but now we've had 2021 and it's, we've got 3,800 cases of wine in barrel right now. And it's just, actually we were tasting through it today. And so far we are elated, like super, super duper excited about being able to make wine out of our own vineyard and yeah. a lot of other great vineyards that are all at this point, um, at least going forward, will all be organically farmed or bare minimum sustainably. But yeah, it's tasting great, super exciting. Yeah. Can't wait for the little wines to grow up. Well, I want to talk about the, that growth. You mentioned 3,800 cases, and that's, that's, a, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of growth from where you started and where, yeah. you, where you were a few years back. So as you were looking at ahead at a plan uh, with the tasting room and all that, how, how, how did you kind of, what, what was your idea? Was your idea, we have to have a tasting room, it has to, you know, it has to be here. Was your idea like, we're going to distribute more wine? How are you kind of planning to grow as you're making mm -hmm. more wine, and, and how is it going so far? Go ahead. Well, I think we had planned on 3,000 cases, and that would be mm -hmm. our <clears throat> place. Um, it seemed like, um, from talking to, talking to others and consulting with others and seeing what other, other people were doing, that that was kind of a sweet spot as far as, well, you know, if you made more wine, then you just have to buy, hire more people, which would then... Sure. Why were you making? Why well, then you, once you hire you people, then wine? you have to be able to pay them, and then you have to make that much more, and then all of a sudden, maybe you're not making the wine yourself as much as like directing people to make the wine for mm -hmm. you. And you need a bigger building, and this is this yeah. is as big of a building as they would allow us to build, and this well, is probably more than we can afford as well. So, yeah. So this is it. <laughs> um, and so yeah, we shot for we shot for three thousand cases and. Um, yeah, so... And we want to build... I we, think... We oh. thought, good. Sorry. sorry. We want to build a house? Is that what you're going to say? No, I was going to say, like, we... Our, our plan the whole time was to have the tasting room here attached to the winery. Yeah. And to... And to... Uh, I think with the, the amount of wine that, that we could make, if we sell it through distribution, we'd probably have to make more, more wine because yeah. of the profit margin thing. So... Have a tasting room, have people come out and, and experience hopefully what, a little part of what we get to experience out here and, and get to look at the river and get to look at the mountain and, well, I think and, and really just... We both wanted to share with people the magic, just tremendous wonder of this place. It's, it's really a special place. It's and the it's, unique thing about where we're at right now is that we're... You know, we're we're in the Columbia Gorge, 
we're in the kind of the central part of it where we're, the, the cascades are kind of descend, ending and descending down as, as we approach White Salmon Hood River and where we're at. And so the weather just whips through this part of the, of the Columbia Gorge. And so when we're out in the vineyard or even out on the patio here and you look out, you know, it might be blue sky over there, it might be dark clouds over there, it might be a rainbow right outside the window. And you can see like, it's distinctly pouring down rain, like right, like a mile over. And there's like sun shining on us right here. It's the weather changes like, so fast and it's so uh, vibrant yeah. that um, it's, yeah, it's just, there's always something entertaining and, and kind of beautiful to look at. Well, we're just like right on the edge, mm -hmm. right, of the Cascade Mountain Range, and we're right on that edge of where the marine time influence comes in from the ocean. The same thing that you get in the Walnut Valley, we get that here. We get a, as much rainfall here as the Dundee Hills. But every mile that you head east in the gorge, you lose an inch of rain. And so you go as far as the Dalles, which is like 30 miles from here. Less. And <clears throat> like where we'll get maybe 36 inches of rain in a year, they might get only six or seven. Mm -hmm. And it's just night and day different. And it's, it's amazing like how now being, so when he said we're in the central part of the gorge, he didn't mean the gorge EVA, but the gorge like looking at it like not as a wine region, but as a geographical region. Um, we're on the western side of the gorge AVA, and um, if we wanted to, and, and maybe we will primarily make wine only in the gorge AVA long term, um, it's an amazing AVA because it is connected, definitely. There's a contiguous connection with the river and the influence of the river, and then this, the air coming in from the coast and the air coming in from the east. And sometimes you can watch and you'll see the the different stratospheres of clouds over the river just flying in different directions, like one on top of another. It's crazy. Um, but, like, you know, we're growing like Riesling here and Gruner Veltliner and Pinot Noir, but if you go down that way, like at the end of the gorge, just, you know, 25 miles that way, they're growing Zinfandel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Cab Sauve and Malbec and Mincia, and it's just like, it's, it's wild, because in the Walnut Valley, you go 30 miles and you're making stuff. Pinot. <laughs> and you started making Pinot, you're still making Pinot, and, and then some. And that's the beauty of the... the it's a wonky the place. The, the, the <laughs> geography and the weather patterns yeah. like basically mandate that it's, you're going to have a super diverse wine growing region. Um, and that's the beauty of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then for us, like high altitude has been, always been something exciting for me. And so working with the Four Winds Vineyard again in the Willamette Valley, it's 800 feet in elevation, and 800 feet in elevation in the Willamette Valley is really, really high. And I find that it gives, it kind of has that tension that you get with these high altitude sites, and you get this really long, drawn out ripening period, and um, you get these cool nights where it's almost like you put the grapes in the refrigerator every night, you know? It's great. Um, and, and so that was like, thrilling about where we are now that like we're at 1300 feet here so we're in the mountains basically right mm -hmm. we're on the foothills of the Cascade Mountains and um, it's an old shield volcano and the soil here is made up of loess um, windblown loess over loam so the soil is primarily like the sandy loam sand and the sand is just decomposed volcanic glass and it like whereas in the valley a lot of the soil has a lot more clay clay can give you a much more plush um, at least my understanding and experience is that clay gives you a much more plush, ripe, 
roundness on the front of the palette, whereas this soil gives you more of a, uh, maybe it's a little bit more linear, angular, something that seems akin to me is minerality, um, and maybe reminds me personally more of burgundies. Um, and I find that super exciting, and I can't wait to see how these wines grow up and age. And it's, uh, I think, a very, very special place because even just across the river on Mount Defiance and Hood River, it's there's just twice as much clay in the soil. A very different, um, beautiful wines being made from that soil as well, but just different. Yeah, and, and that uniqueness to this place is really cool. Mm-hmm. The gorge is crazy that way because like there's so many like little tiny pockets that are really special. Mm-hmm. Um. You talked earlier about your your first vintage here being smoke affected ones, so this is kind of your first like clean vintage of twenty one, yeah, from your home fruit here. So uh, how are you how are you sort of coming to understand your vineyard and and the wines coming out of it? And how how long does that process? In your mind, take how long does it take to feel familiar with the place and familiar with what 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 you do is going to how it's going to be reflected in the wine? Hmm. Well, I'll say from history, I would say I'd like at least three times making something before I start to feel like I know what I'm doing. At least maybe five. <laughs> so it'll take time. Um, what do you yeah, think? I yeah, I, mean, I think just as far as <clears throat> as far as the vineyard and how. I think that's we're, we've we've got kind of the the ground level of how we're going to take care of that, and we have plans for it. Uh, how that's how that's going to affect the wine, we we don't we don't know, and we can all, we're just going to wait and see what happens. But we do expect that but to bring back the the health of the soil, it'll take actually three to five years, which is funny. Yeah. It wasn't. I didn't mean yeah. that to be. A yeah, it's going to take some. It's going to take some time. Connective thing. Yeah. And and perhaps with bringing. I've heard this somewhere. Perhaps it's bringing the the soil food web or the biology back into the soil that it's going to create even more energy and perhaps what people are tasting as minerality because um, it's, cause it's probably not actually the rocks that they're, they're yeah. tasting seem to understand um, that it's going to add more of that energy that Julia was affectionately talking about earlier to the wines. We hope. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about the the industry a bit more broadly here for a second. Actually, before I do that, I want to back up for a second and ask about the name Loop-de-Loop because we never did actually cover how you became um, named Loop-de-Loop. So tell us about the story behind the name. Well, I started that before I met Scott. So Loop-de-Loop was sort of my trajectory in the wine industry. I worked in the wine industry for, I don't know, eight, nine years, and then I left and did something different when I went abroad and worked with international relations, and then I came back and started to make my own wine. So it was a little loop-de-loop. <laughs> like it. But then sometimes we're like, but at this point, it feels so long ago, <laughs> it's more than 10 years ago, that I came back. So now it's like, well, every year it's kind of like a loop-de-loop. <laughs> Just go around the sun one more time. <laughs> so let's talk about the, the industry more in general. And so uh, I'm curious your perspectives on uh, kind of the changes in Oregon wine, uh, what you've sort of seen as a part of the industry. I know. Technically not on the Oregon side anymore, but I think things still connect to the Oregon wine industry. So tell me about the changes, the growth in Oregon wine, what you've seen from your perspective, and, and maybe kind of a look ahead at what comes next for the industry. Mm-hmm. Well, do you want to? I, no. 
<laughs> remember earlier it's, it's when all, I said my five-year plan didn't exist, it was more like just looking at, we'll see what happens when we do this. Um, I, I don't know if I'd want to venture a guess on what's going to happen in the Oregon wine industry any more than I think everybody. I mean, the Oregon wine industry. I don't know. I feel like we've been so microcosmic with our little world here, especially with COVID, that I haven't yeah. even put my mind in that area for a long time. And I, and I'm, uh, I came into the wine world like completely from a far out Sideways. So the only <laughs> thing I know about wine is what little I know from other people and what I've read and a lot of what I've heard from her. So I know, I know nothing. But well, you've tasted a lot could, with me though, too. You could, you could make a conjecture that with climate change that people from California or France or, or elsewhere are going to be looking at the Willamette Valley as a place to come, and they already have been, and perhaps even growing, you know, increasing the diversity of what's being grown there because it's going to get warmer and warmer. Um, or maybe just Pinot Noir is going to change how it, how it tastes and grows a little bit because it's, the climate's changing. Uh, it's not like the, the 1980s where I grew up, um, in like Tualatin, where it rained once a week every summer. I remember that. It doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. More. What about, oh, go ahead. Oh, I just don't know. I mean, <clears throat> I, I mean, I guess I have some feelings. I know that the price of grapes are like through the roof, crazy high now, which makes me think you have to have a lot of money to make mm -hmm. wine out of the grapes, or you have to just know that you have to charge a lot of money for the wine that you make out of these grapes because of it. there's just you just you can't pencil it out and and that for me is kind of scary like i never wanted to make wine that i couldn't afford to drink you know um i think i think it should be for everyone and, and when you have very special barrels maybe they become more expensive but um but not exclusive as a whole um I don't know if we're just at a moment because of the wildfires in 2020 where things are super high and then they'll come back down, or if because of climate change enough people are translocating from other places to make wine here, uh, or just because the quality is so exceptional that people are moving here to make wine and that the prices will just keep going up. I think that it won't stop us from making wine. I think, I mean, clearly it won't stop us from making wine, but even from the Willamette Valley because we love it's like my home personally it's like my where i go back to um in my heart as as the place where i came from in a way um especially in the wine world in particular i guess um so we'll keep making some Willamette valley as we move forward being in the gorge um always i think hopefully but, from the four winds vineyard yeah i don't know it'll yeah oh yeah hopefully like fingers really? crossed tyson crowley has been very generous to yeah. say that we can always do that so, <laughs> as long as john steinhardt continues to let us have it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I think, of course, there are a lot of people um, interested in experimenting with varietals that aren't Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Pinot Gris and maybe even Riesling. Um, and I think that's really interesting and a lot of fun. And I personally like the idea of making wine out of different things. Um, I think sometimes it's hard to wrangle me in to actually continuing to work with the same, like. I'm, I'm realizing since we have a tasting room, people expect the same wine when they come back. And I'm like, well, no, I already made that one. I'm going to make a different wine. <laughs> <laughs> Try it. 
Um, like, I think there's always going to be a little, like, and that's partly why we created another label called the Wallflower Project. Like, that's a home for that energy of, uh, like, mm -hmm. a more, like, experimental, um, Post, that's uh, not what I wanted to say. I was going to say modern, but also antique, because it's like, what's old is new again, sort of like orange wines. Well, that's really just how wine was made for a really long time before. Same thing with like pet nats, like, you know, that's just the way it was made. So like that kind of stuff, but also like the antique wines where like the whole village would come out and put all their grapes into a press and you would just get like in, in the Jura, it would be like Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Trousseau and Pulsard. And um, like there's a producer called Chateau d'Arlay that still makes those wines today um, and has always, from my understanding, um, that I used to represent. And um, I love those wines. I think they're so cool and, and, um, and so like, specific to the place where they come in a way that's even more interesting than if it's a single varietal. Because um, it's maybe more holistic. And so that's the Wallflower Project for us, where we can do those things. And um, at the same time, Loop to Loop will be where we continue to focus on the more classic, like Burgundian is like the compass points to Burgundy, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, like Riesling, which maybe not Burgundian Riesling, but you know, but like what we learned about in Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like when I started to make wine way back when, mm -hmm. I, like, the Riesling would have been influenced from Jimmy Brooks um, and then later Matt Burson and others. Evald Mosler was a huge influence in everyone, I think, in this area. But, um, but then, you know, of course. So that's what Loop to Loop will be. And, and even as, if it moves forward and makes um, Syrah, and, like, but more like Northern Rune, like classical focus, whereas Wallflower is where we can um, play with the new things that are being planted. And we're really excited about that because we haven't, like, how do you know, really? Um, well, we do know that Pinot works really, really well in Chardonnay. Like we're seeing the potential of Chardonnay, and oh, up here, yeah, yeah. In, in Oregon in particular, because mm. we're talking yeah. about the Oregon wine industry. But yeah. um, but up here as well, because we're very similar in climate up here where we are, yeah. in some ways. So with the vineyard here, what are the future plans? Obviously, you're nursing it back to health first. Uh, yeah. Do you have plans beyond that? I'll let you take this. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, we're, um, well, we have about four acres of forest right behind us, and um, it was harvested about 20, 21 years ago, and so now it's kind of regrown. It's not a super healthy forest, but it's got some, it's got some critters living in there, and we like the biodiversity, and we like the forest and the shade and the summertime, and Stuff like that, but I think, but I think we're going to find a place to put plant another about an acre of vines. So um, that might happen this coming this coming fall. We have to find the best time for that, and we also have to figure out how to remove some of the some of the trees and prepare the ground. And so that's a whole new. But we're really committed well. to leaving as much of the forest as possible. <laughs> so while it is, it was all replanted. Um, it was done in a very like clusterfuck way. <laughs> like basically, when they they harvested the forest, they just threw a ton of seeds down, and now it's just completely overpacked and um, it's kind of all over kind of everything strangling everything else out, and and so it needs to be thinned, and we need to do some a little bit of management just to kind of like help it come back. Mm -hmm. But I mean, 
at the same time, like we saw a bobcat come out of that wooded area one night into the vineyard, and I found we found a. There's a bear up there eating blackberries. Summers ago, it was there all summer. She was yeah. really f too close to, and yeah. didn't want her there, and so it <laughs> let her know that it did not want her. There. Another reason not to have too thick of a patch of woods. <laughs> but um, Can't but see we the also bear found feet away from you. Yeah. Yeah. But like I was super excited about finding like the. Um, the fairy slipper orchid, which is an indicator species, like growing in the forest, like there's definitely like a lot of indigenous, like different types of dogwood and um, native blackberries and all types of things that are coming back that are super exciting to to kind of regrowing the landscape and yeah. so we'll definitely keep the wooded area um, while still trying to plant maybe just one more acre of grapes somewhere in a way that it, we can work, like, carve it out. That will not right. detrimentally impact what we're working on here. Mm -hmm. And what do you want to plant? Mm, that's a good question. There's so many things. We wish we had another 50 acres to plant. <laughs> what do you want? You're the winemaker. We keep talking about Gamay. Gamay, Trousseau, yeah. Aligote. Aligote <laughs> has been mentioned. Oh. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know that we'll, we'll we've got see. A, we've got a spot in the, we have some Gruner in the vineyard. And we, I, I, just, I don't know, both of us, but I'm kind of starting to fall in love with Gruner Veltliner and uh, really excited to see what our, our Gruner is going to do this year. Yeah, but it's coming along great. We need about, I don't know, 100, we've, we're missing some vines out there, so we need, yeah. to, we need to regrow those in the vineyard and we're excited about filling, yeah. filling that space in. And, Taking care of those baby vines, so that's that's a project that's coming up soon too. Yeah. What else is you looking ahead to the future? Obviously, just kind of getting your feet under you here in the new site and, and, and figuring out what what comes next. So, uh, plans for the future as as a as a brand, as a couple, as a as a place. What what are you looking ahead to, kind of short term, long term? Paying our mortgage every month. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have been you know, we've been working really hard for several years now and trying to get this get this here and get this going and see work life balance learn learn how to take, just take care of this. So I think in addition to the things we just talked about, like planting another acre, if we can have a day off consistently one one day a week, that'd be sweet. If we can enjoy yeah. the beautiful place that we moved to a little bit more as far as recreation goes that would be great i think doing what we do as well as we can possibly do it like really just yeah. going yeah. with the inspiration and creativity that comes with every vintage of learning what happens with what mother nature gives you and like your own fuck ups and um, successes along the way like building on that and just doing the best we possibly can i think that's enough right now, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and I don't. We don't want to grow any more than I think at all than where we are. Just doing a better job yeah. with what we don't we're want doing. A, we don't want another winery over there. We don't want to. No. We don't want another vineyard. <laughs> Tasting room. No. <laughs> yeah, we're we're doing good. Hi hiring another person, maybe. maybe. <laughs> like that would yep. be. Yeah. Try to just yeah. I think just do it. Run the I think run the business better. Yeah. Put in some, make things a little more efficient. Send the people the wine when they order it. Right. Stuff like that. <laughs> it's a little thing. That's my long-term you know. goal. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So I'm curious about this. This will be the last question for you. Uh, in terms of uh, you, you're 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 a couple and you're also in a business together. You're you're spending a lot of time 
Tell me about how that how you make that work. What's the what's the key to making this work as both a, a personal relationship and a business relationship, and, and keeping things going well? Um, I'm happy to say it's actually working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really know the answer. I think, I think we. Uh, I think we. Do you ask every couple that you interview this? <laughs> I think we uh, have realized that at times we need to work together, and at times yes. we need to yeah. what we call divide and conquer. Yeah. Um, uh, it's kind of funny. Like you know, if you talk, to, if you if we look at a house, she and I will always or Almost a wine or you know like there's so many things or like that is beautiful. I don't like that as much. Like we are completely on the same page. Yeah. If Luckily. they were like, if they were like, go fill that bucket up over there, she and I would do it exactly opposite. Yeah, every, every time. time. <laughs> so for us to work together on the same project, sometimes it's hard because, you know, we start running into each other because we're going to do exactly the opposite thing. But but in the end, if she just did it, it would be completely, it would be perfect. And if I did it, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be just fine. <laughs> No, it's true. We do do a good job of divide and conquer. Yeah. yeah. So that's I think that's realizing that is, is part of it, and I think just yeah. communicating, and I think both of us trying to be understanding and compassionate towards each other. Um, I think let's say we like well. being around each other though, and we like we appreciate each other and the input, and like I could have tasted through the wines today without you, but. I wanted you to do it with me. It's, it's more fun. It <laughs> sure is. Well, somebody's yeah. got to climb the ladder. Well, so you grew the grapes. Like, you got to taste what you did. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, of course. Yeah. I don't know if that answered the question exactly, but yeah. It, it certainly did. Okay. <clears throat> we don't ask every couple of that, but there are some when you're just like, you work together an awful lot. How, does, yeah. how do you make that work? It's just, it's just fascinating to me how, how that works. Probably for anyone it would be challenging, right? Like you work together all day and then you go home and you're supposed to like have a romantic dinner. Like, like, how do I stop talking about the grapes or whatever? That's a challenge I think that we have to work on probably. But, but work, I think being mindful of it. Yeah. Oh yeah, we just never stop working. But then again, when we're at work sometimes we go play. So <laughs> it's okay. So all the questions that I have for the two of you today, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered today? No, that's pretty good. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you both. Thank you. Time. Appreciate thank your time you. and your hospitality here, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thanks. All right. <laughs>